Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's that time again. It's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we'll be talking about issues relating to Palestine with Kim Bullimore. The final information session on all things GM with Bob Phelps looking at the situation in Sri Lanka with Dr. Brian Sinwaratna. Kian Wong, Malaysian journalist, will be finding out what's going on in that country, particularly with the, the BSI 5 demonstration a week or so ago. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy, see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when those long-haired commie lots who fear U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo elect Donald Trump or the poor might trample the poor, can relax. Turns out Donald's one of them. A dangerous long-haired, well, bits of it, bits of long-haired commie greedy, confirmed by no less reliable a source than that repository of wisdom and truth, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, usual suspect columnist, bolt through the head. In his predictable eulogy of Cuban revolutionary Fidel, about whom he didn't have a lot of nice things to say, in fact, none. If ever there was proof the ABC was a publicly funded waste of public funds, a long-haired commie front brainwashing the innocent, it was the ABC's coverage of Fidel's demise, he told us. Why, it even said some good things about him, suggested he had done good things for Cuba ignoring the fact that the pre-revolutionary rich and their descendants were celebrating the death across the briny in Miami. So given the ABC coverage we heard and saw, listener, led with Donald declaring Fidel was a brutal commie dictator who made Cuba unlivable, made worse my emphasis by prolonging their lives through its health system when they all want to die, obviously to escape the misery, but are brutally, dictatorially kept alive by the health system and brutally educated and housed and the list goes on. So obviously the Lord Rupert usual suspect columnist knows quoting Donald proves a long-haired commie greeny wouldn't work in an iron bias. So axiomatically Donald must be a long-haired commie and given the usual suspect columnist himself just a few days earlier had quoted Donald quite favourably he must have had a sudden conversion or, and it's possible I suppose, bolt through the head himself is a closet long-haired commie greenie. The response made it obvious the pre-1959 Cuba the streets of Miami longed for and mourned was not an evil, evil, brutal dictatorship, but a good, good, greatest little economic order of them all dictatorship, leaving us to fear for the US of people now they have innocently elected a long-haired commie greenie to run the place, a non-brutal, non-dictator leaving us to ponder why back in evil Cuba the non-rich who did not flee across the ocean to the sanctuary of those who ran the pre-1959 economy were mourning the loss of Fidel and saying positive things about him. 
saying positive things back here about evil unions and workers. Last week we expressed surprise at not a grey hair to be seen Nick Xenophobe and hang em high Darren Lynchum voting to crush evil unions and lazy avaricious workers and after voting to crush evil unions Darren assured us he was not anti-union as if anyone would think he was. Of course I'm not. I'm a great supporter of the True Blue Aussie Prophets Council, for instance, and I have great regard for the sorry, police association and, like their members, despair at the fact that evil criminals like shoplifters and beggars are often given release dates by lily-livered goody-goody judges. Now this week, in the lead-up to the vote on the Smash the Evil Union's Jackboots Commission, we look forward to daily deliberations, daily conscience-wracking by Nick and Darren et al. on the crossbenches. And of course, they haven't made up their minds yet. They're still pontificating the sensible, set a balanced world between caring business class and socialists. The crossbenches are well-named, aren't they? They certainly make us cross. Don't know about you, but I've developed this spontaneous tick, uncontrollable reaction whenever I hear them say they haven't yet decided which way they'll vote on the Smash the Evil Union's Jack Boots Commission. An uncontrollable, cynical sneer. Why would that be? On the Get Evil Union Bosses Bill passed last week, the Socialist Party said it had been prepared to discuss a deal with the government. We've got to admire their solidarity, haven't we? Any wonder workers so put their faith in them. Although the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review knows they're headed up to their necks with the evil criminal unions. P1 story last week about a New South Wales union official, a heavy player in that socialist hotbed, the New South Wales Socialist Party right, whose record includes convictions for serious domestic violence. He, he sounds like a real charmer, but this expose led the Capitalist Review to run an entire editorial, Labor should be ashamed of this. And I thought, when caring business class crooks get exposed, we always see righteous editorials. Liberal coalition should be ashamed of this, don't we? Incidentally, the right-wing Hebby's family says the events occurred nine years ago and anti-domestic violence intervention had worked. They are still now happily together. And the story has embarrassed them no end. The poor capitalist review must feel so abashed. So abashed, it pitted the family's reputation right next to the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Makalia Koshler workers, using the story to attack the Socialist Party and evil unions as the cause of all domestic violence, all crime generally, all evil in True Blue Aussie. The righteous also exploded with justified indignation, indeed anger, after a terra nullius person claimed the terra nullius immigration department and leaders of the time had made a mistake allowing no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people from England to settle in True Blue Aussie, which was then not True Blue Aussie, circa 1788. Ten out of ten criminals who have terrorised our people have been the first, second and Teenth generation of those illegal migrants, the Terra Nullius person alleged. 
the usual Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin aforementioned colonists went borderline insane that a people who weren't even here, the Terranilius people, could display such ingratitude to those who not only liberated them, but civilised them, lifted them out of savagery and paganism, brought them the celestial benefits of Christianity of the dear baby Jesus. And the current Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, said it for all of us. This is like, you know, racist motivated attack condemning a whole race for the actions of a few and assumes that attempts at assimilation, Pete. Yeah, that's it, like assimilation, like thwarted by, like, you know, ungrateful savages was terrorism. Why, to show the depths of which these black, you know, like races will like sink, they even claim a great true blue Aussie who has been honoured with a federal white seat named after him, Angus Macmillan, is a like terrorist. Whereas real students of history like, you know, like me, know Angus would not have had to kill thousands of these black ingrates if they had like removed themselves peacefully and lawfully from land which was not theirs, you know, like, not to remove themselves from. Uh, yes, Peter, by the way, what generation of refugees and migrants are you? I don't like follow. I, I'm a proud, you know, true blue Aussie. I'm not a refugee or migrant. I come from a long line of duffers. Yes, yes, but when did the line of duffers migrate to true blue Aussie? How many generations? What, what generation migrant are you? I told you, I don't follow. I, I'm a real true blue Aussie. Interesting, you don't look black. Uh? Pete and his big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull attacked the socialists for whipping up race hatred and terrorism by misrepresenting what Pete said. Yes, how did they misrepresent him? They, like, quoted me. Yes, they quoted him. Gross, unbelievable irresponsibility. Good point, and their misrepresentation is compounded by the fact they are politicians themselves, and no politicians can never be trusted. So the odds are Pete hasn't got a racist bone in his body. Unless he says he hasn't got a racist bone in his body, which would prove, well, well I'm sure we follow. And look, sometimes this segment can unfairly criticise the greatest little economic order of them all, but deep down we have to admire its capacity for forward planning, for thinking long term, for its selfless crusade to lift even the most evil of workers and bludgers with the rising tide. Take the true blue Aussie, Aussie's Car Business Profits Council's Jennifer Bestercut Taxes in an article this week telling us it is best to cut taxes. Not all taxes, mind you, but taxes on the rich, because then those droplets of yellow liquid will trickle down on the undeserving. See, cut taxes, increase profits, increase productivity, and the problem they acknowledge of slow wages growth will be overcome. Wages for the undeserving will soar through the roof, even though on the very opposite page to Jennifer's argument, another article pointing out that since the 1980s, economic rationalism, profits have soared, productivity has soared, and real wages have collapsed. So this proves Jennifer's brilliance. She knows 30 years of planning so wages could increase is about to hit the target. Because she says the way to increase real wages is to make profits soar 
soar even more and productivity soar even more, the problem clearly they haven't soared enough over 30 years. So it's obviously a 30-year plan by great capitalist visionaries like Maggie Thatcher and Ronnie Reagan and those wise economists who captured their imagination. Although, finally, we must not risk our AAA rating. I'm sure, like me, listener, you spend night after night tossing and turning at the dread thought that we might lose our AAA rating. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy, and it's great to hear that he's up there on top of it all once more. I'm speaking now with activist Kim Bullimore. Kim, two people being praised for their work in different areas. One is Leonard Cohen and the other Stan Grant. I'm sure, as I do, you have serious issues with both men, beginning with Cohen. Leonard Cohen is a a world-renowned figure and he is much loved by many people across the political spectrum, including many on the left. It's absolutely understandable why many people love his music and love the politics that that he put forward, which was, in general, a broad liberal left politics but what's often been left what had been left out very noticeably in a lot of the obituaries and the you know the articles commemorating his life was also his role in supporting unfortunately Israeli apartheid and the Israeli war machine the two sort of most notable incidents you can talk about are obviously back in 19 19- 73, when Israel went to war with Egypt, Cohen actually went to Israel and performed on the front line for the Israeli troops. And there's photos of him on the front line standing to Ariel Sharon, who was widely known as the Butcher of Beirut because he was held responsible for the massacres that were carried out against Palestinians in Shabra and Shatila during uh, Israel's invasion of Lebanon in the 1980s. So, you know, this is uh, something that's sort of been a bit whitewashed out of Cohen's history. Uh, And also the other incident was in 2009 where he went and performed in Israel again. Uh, And at the time he was asked by by uh, the BDS campaign and, and Palestinian activists not to perform to respect the boycott that was uh, being called for. At the time, Cohen was, uh, had uh, thought to perform both in Israel and Ramallah, but this was rejected by the Palestinians because that equates to what's known as normalisation. Normalisation is basically that, you know, by trying to draw an equal sign between... Israel and Palestine uh, wiping out the fact that one side is an oppressor and the other one side is is the oppressed. This normalises the occupation, it normalises Israeli apartheid, things like that. So it was rejected by uh, Palestinian activists and the concert in Ramallah was cancelled. So instead, uh, what Cohen sought to do was to, through I think it was Amnesty International, to uh, make a donation to a number of what's known as coexistence organisations inside Israel, for example, the Perez Peace Centre and things like that, uh, who are well known as normalisation institutes. So this was very much rejected by the Palestinian activists and those involved in the BDS campaign. So, you know, it was a very sad thing for many people because many activists, you know, love Cohen's work and uh, love his music. And so I think it's important. Uh, it's, It's not to say that people shouldn't 
enjoy his music and shouldn't listen to it. But we should also be aware that this uh, he's, he was politically flawed in this sense. So that's a, a very sad thing, I think, uh, to, re- to recall. But I think it is important to recall it. And it's similar to, you know, also Bob Dylan recently, who was awarded the Nobel uh, Prize for, uh, I think it was, it's technically literature, he was awarded it for. You know, again, Bob Dylan is remembered by many people, including many people on the left, particularly for his songs from the 60s and that, uh, anti-war songs and things like that. But Dylan is a very, in some ways, similar case to Cohen in that he, 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 one of his um, probably... I don't know if it's lesser known or better known songs uh, called Neighbourhood Bully is actually a song that was was written in defence of the Israeli state. Again, it was written after the Shabra and Shatila massacres uh, where Israel went uh, was responsible for the the murder of more than two or three thousand Palestinians in the uh, refugee camps in Lebanon in conjunction with the Lebanese Falange. So Dylan wrote this song in defence of the Israeli state. So you have obviously, again, a very flawed political position being held by someone who's often seen as more progressive and more uh, loved by people on the left. So again, uh, I think it's important to recognise these things without whitewashing them. Uh, But again, you know, that doesn't mean that either of these people haven't contributed also on one level to some wonderful music to the world, including uh, anti-war songs and uh, things like that. The other person you mentioned was Stan Grant. As as people know, Stan Grant uh, is an Aboriginal journalist. Uh, He's very well known. He's very respected as a journalist and a reporter. Uh, And then in the last a couple of years, he's become more prominent in the media, speaking out in support of Aboriginal rights and talking about racism in Australia. And this, again, is something, you know, we should recognise and it should be congratulated. And I think it's important that that this voice is out there. But also, you know, recently we had with uh, Stan Grant, there was on the ABC, there was a show which was about the recognised campaign, which is a campaign that supposedly is looking to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the Constitution. Now, this campaign, while it has a lot of support from the government, and it does have support from a section of Aboriginal community, it is also a very divisive campaign within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. There's many Indigenous activists and Australians who don't support the campaign. Uh, and this is often not talked about, but many of them don't support it because it doesn't go far enough or it doesn't actually do what the, what the community wants. You know, when the Recognised Campaign was first started, they went out and actually did all these consultations with Aboriginal communities around Australia and something like 85, 90% of the communities said, look, you know, what we want is actually treaty. We think treaty is the most important thing, which is different to recognition. But uh, basically the recognised campaign has said well, we don't think that's possible. Sovereignty's not possible. We're just going to go for this. So uh, this is the reason why many Aboriginal activists and writers and other members of the community aren't supportive, but there is also people who are supportive. In relation to Grant, uh, on this program, which was called Recognition Yes or No, he appeared on it along with a, a lot of other Aboriginal people. And it, basically it was this sort of conversation that was led by a number of 
different people. One of them in particular was Andrew Bolt, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it because as most people will know that Bolt has been widely known for his racially discriminatory commentary on Aboriginal issues. Uh, He was taken to court by a number of Aboriginal uh, activists and scholars because of, you know, his claims uh, against them that they weren't really, really Aboriginal. These are sort of things that, that, you know, is well known in Bolt's history. But during the interview, Grant was attempting in his section of the program to rebut Bolt's dismissal of Aboriginal identity. And he was trying to, you know, to illustrate resilience of Aboriginal identity. But unfortunately, to do this, the example he gave was... Israel, uh, and, 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 he, and this is a quote that he gave. He says, I've been to Israel and I've seen the sense of Jewish belonging, whether you're an Ethiopian or a Jew or a Russian Jew or an American Jew, and a whole range of ethnicities and everything else around it that coalesces uh, around a sense of belonging and kinship. Uh, and so basically he then went on to say that, you know, in a 100 years, despite other influences, Aboriginal identity would still remain strong and viable. Now, that's true in that sense in regard to Aboriginal identity, but uh, it was quite uh, quite disappointing to see him hold up Israel as this example of a society that embraces all ethnicities, when in reality we know this is not true, and, and surely, I'm sure, uh, you know, Stan Grant also would be aware of the situation in uh, Israel because he has reported from there many times uh, and on the situation in the Middle East. You know, as we've discussed on your program many times, Israel is an apartheid state. There is at least 50 laws within Israel that actively discriminate against non-Jewish people in all areas, everything from employment to schooling to marriage to a whole range of issues. Uh, You know, Israel, like Australia, is a settler colonial state. And, you know, settler colonial states are specific forms of imperialist formations, which basically are premised on the ethnic cleansing and dispossession of the indigenous population. Now, that happened in Australia and it's also happened obviously in Palestine in relation to the the Palestinian people. What both um, countries, both Australia and Israel have in common is that they're both characterised by massive inequalities that are usually uh, codified in law and built into the structural system both economically, socially and politically and it often privileges the settler population over the the indigenous population. And we see this here in Australia, you know, with laws like the Northern Territory intervention and various things like that. And of course in Israel there is all of these apartheid laws. So it was really disappointing, you know, for to Here's Stan Grant, who has been so eloquent in many ways, speaking out and and speaking up for the Aboriginal community to cite Israel as some model that we as Aboriginal people should be aspiring to or that anybody in Australia should be aspiring to. And I think, um, you know, as, as much as I think we can respect Grant for speaking out on one level in support of Aboriginal rights, we also need to call him out and say no, Israel isn't a model for Aboriginal people. It's not a model for Australians either, the rest of Australia either. So I think that's really important to to note that. Just referring to the BDS movement for a moment, in response to successes, obviously, around the world, the Israeli government has allocated $30 to to an anti-BDS campaign, but now a bill has been introduced in the Knesset, the parliament, banning BDS activists from 
entering Israel. How are they going to find out if you're an BDS activist? Oh, look, uh, you know, this is an interesting thing. I mean, the thing is, is that Israel, as you said, has allocated $30 million. And you have to be amused on one level and and on another level appalled because, you know, you hear from both the Israeli state and from, you know, apologists for the Israeli state. On one hand, you hear them saying that BDS is inconsequential. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make any difference. And then on the other hand, it's, you know, the greatest threat since ever. And so, you know, there's this sort of really polar attitude from Zionists and the Israeli state to BDS. Now, of course, I mean, look, you know, BDS activists, they don't hide who they are. BDS activists are quite outspoken. And this is one of the sort of things that that often the Israeli state and Zionists have tried to say, oh, we're going to shame, you know, supporters of Palestinian rights and uh, the BDS campaign, and we're going to name and shame them. But, you know, I think every single BDS activist I know, they're like, we don't care. You know, we're proud to support the struggle for Palestinian rights and human rights sort of thing. I mean, in relation to these campaigns, it's obviously, it's again, uh, sorry, not campaign, in relation to this, these laws, this is an extension of laws that were already introduced into Israel, like back in 2011, there was um, sort of more domestic style laws introduced where basically if you publicly supported BDS or came out in support of the, the, the Palestinian struggle through BDS, then you know, you could be uh, denied state funding, you could be denied various other things. Uh, initially, that initial law, when it was first introduced, they wanted to actually jail BDS activists for three years. Now, uh, you know, speaking to many Israeli activists uh, that I know who are very uh, outspokenly in support of BDS, they don't hide it. So far, this law was introduced five years ago. It's had very little impact on it. You know, uh, I, I recall some of them at the time was basically saying, well, yeah, come get us, and nothing's happened. Yes, there has been instance, instances in Israel where, for example, where there's been joint Israel-Palestine films and the uh, Palestinian directors or whoever have come out in support of Palestinian rights and have spoken out against the Israeli state. There's been attempts to deny them funding and things like that, but it's not specifically, as far as I'm aware so far linked to the to BDS support. Now, of course, that can change in the future. I mean, we're not saying that they won't be implemented. But so far, while the law has been there, it's been pretty lame duck sort of thing. But that's not to say, as I said, that in future that it can be used in a much more stringent and strident way. In relation to the current laws, again... You know, as I said, most BDS activists don't really hide who they are. I cannot actually see that changing that aspect of BDS activism at all. I would find it really surprising if that happened. What this, again, is an attempt to intimidate and to try, you know, stop BDS activism uh, going ahead. Now, of course, it may be real in the next year, two or three or more, that activists who do support BDS will be denied entry on a more regular basis to Palestine. That 
may be well true uh, because this law will apply not only to individual activists but it'll also apply to organisations and institutes that support BDS uh, who have, have said that or sort of supported any sort of boycotting. So that could have a more level on a more NGO level, could be organisations that seen as more reputable and things like that that may have problems getting people in to the occupied Palestinian territories and things like that. But on an activist level, while it would possibly stop some activists going, it's not going to stop them from campaigning for Palestine. So in that level, it will be quite ineffectual. In the sense of the laws, my understanding of what's been passed, it's similar to the 2011 law, is that it doesn't make a distinction between the boycotting of settlement products and settlement goods and the overall boycott that's proposed by the BDS campaign, which is the more broader boycott, which involves academic and uh, cultural issues and a whole heap of things, uh, which, you know, internationally, uh, with international law, is problematic because most international institutions, whether it be the International Court of Justice, whether it be states like the US, at least currently, um, recognise that there is an occupation going on in the West Bank and the EU and all that, things like that, who, who actually say, well, yes, it's fine to boycott the settlement products. But this law, as I understand it, doesn't make that distinction and neither did the law in 2011. And you're listening to activist Kim Bullimore, Actors for Palestinian Rights. Okay, another bill aimed at banning mosques from broadcasting the Muslim prayer call in the early morning Mm. and and evening. Is that just Jerusalem? No, uh, my understanding is that it's um, supposed to be over different sections. Uh, I don't know if it's blanket. Uh, It's still, the laws are still in the process of being passed and things like that. But originally what brought it about was complaints from uh, settlers, illegal Israeli settlers in an illegal Israeli colony of Pistzikov. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, which is one of the settlement, uh, what's known as the settlement colonies in the ring, the ring around East Jerusalem. These are the colonies that literally divide occupied East Jerusalem from the occupied West Bank. So they had made, originally how this came about was they made a complaint about it being too noisy. So this law is basically being passed about noise pollution, noise disturbance. I mean, and you know, this is of course not the first time that Israel has attempted to do this, to have the calls banned and things like that. Uh, it's, there's been a long history of this attempt to do this. But I think this is f- the furthest that they've got legally in the attempt to do it. There is already laws in place inside of Israel that already regulate, you know, levels of noise and things like that. So it's not as if there are not laws there. But this is to ban the actual call. Now, of course, Netanyahu and the, the, uh, the Knesset and those who support him are saying, you know, this has got nothing to do with banning religion or anything like that. It's just about noise. Of course, that's just a load of baloney. This is specifically aimed at Palestinian Muslims, specifically aimed at trying to suppress 
religious observances by Palestinians, by the Israeli state. Now, of course, what's been actually heartening about this is that Palestinian Christians have come out and uh, churches have come out and said, well, if they're going to ban it, we will do it from the churches. We will make the calls from the churches, which, you know, is really wonderful. It's a show of solidarity within the Palestinian community. And there has already been... uh, uh, one example of um, the churches actually doing this, of actually call, um, making the the calls from the church. I think it's important to remember the other thing that's happened with this is that it was just the other day. I haven't seen the film clip, but um, but a friend of mine who's Palestinian was telling me about it. That there was Palestinians going up onto the roofs of the houses, calling, doing the prayer for the call to prayer from there. So it became this collective form of rebellion, which um, was something that also happened during the Intifadas as well, because during the Intifadas. Israel closed down a lot of the mosques because a lot of the mosques would, you know, would announce the uh, the various rallies and things like that. It's terrible that this law is being passed, but it is a good sign that the Palestinian Christian community has come out in solidarity with the the Palestinian Muslim community. And of course, you know, there has been this long history of Zionism and even under the British mandate of the British colonial regime trying to divide the Palestinian communities along sectarian lines, you know, only dealing with Palestinian Muslims and only dealing with Palestinian Christians. And Palestinians have generally rejected that. They've always, you know, nine times out of ten, organised as one community. And so it's good to see that this is happening, but it is very much an attack on Palestinian religious rights, you know, and what's interesting about this is given the hypocrisy of the Israeli state, for example, when it seized control of East Jerusalem in 1967 and you see there's those famous photos of the um, Israeli soldiers at the Western Wall, you know, there was all these claims then that that Jewish rights had been restricted, religious practices and things like that. Now, Israel is doing exactly the same thing, not only to Palestinian Muslims, but to Palestinian Christians through a whole variety of policies and laws. And so, you know, the claim by Netanyahu that this is not an attack on the religious rights of Palestinians should be taken with a grain of salt. Two issues relating to the election of Trump is the the next president of the United States. The first that, um, as many others before him have said, that they're going to he's going to shift the U.S. embassy into Jerusalem. And the second issue, the people he's um, choosing for his cabinet particularly Stephen Bannon. One of uh, Trump's election promises was supposedly to move the uh, American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, there is no embassies from any country in the world that are currently located in Jerusalem because it is recognised internationally in international law as occupied Palestinian territory. And so that's why the Australian embassy is in Tel Aviv and all the other embassies are in Tel Aviv. Now, of course, the Israeli state has always claimed Jerusalem as a united undivided capital for the Zionist state and you know it would be a major major symbolic victory for them to have the American embassy move to 
Jerusalem or any embassy to move Jerusalem, to be honest. Whether this will happen, you know, this has been something that's been threatened for many years, uh, that, that various people have said they will do. You know, Trump has said he will do it. I'm not convinced that it will happen, not because he doesn't want to do it, but because it's not the easiest, it will not be the easiest thing to do. Uh, and there'll be a lot of barriers in the way for it to happen. That doesn't mean it may not happen. It could well happen. But at the moment, I'm not convinced it will sort of thing. But, you know, I could well be proven wrong on this. In relation to the Trump campaign and his selections of personnel, yeah, look, you know, as We've now woken up, as they say, into a brave new world where we now have Donald Trump as the most powerful, who will be the most powerful leader in the world come January or February next year once he actually takes the presidency. And, you know, there was obviously lots of concern throughout his campaign because of the racist rhetoric, you know, not only about Muslims, but Hispanic people, about black people. There was, you know, obviously the whole uh, horrendous stuff that was uh, out in the media about the sexism and you know going on about being able to grab a woman's private parts and things like this so you know the, the whole campaign was pretty uh, racist sexist uh, homophobic all of these sort of things now of course what's sort of really shone people a lot in the last week or so is the announcement that Steve Bannon will be uh, Trump's chief advisor and strategist in the uh, White House now Bannon's not new to the campaign Bannon has been part of the Trump campaign for the last few months he He's been one of his uh, chief strategists. Now, the reason why there's this outcry around Bannon is because Bannon is seen as being a major representative of the white supremacist right wing. Uh, you know, they like to call themselves the alt-right. I don't want to use that term because I think it actually whitewashes what they are, that this, these are white supremacists, neo-Nazi fascist, they're racist and basically it's pretty full on what these people represent. And of course we know throughout Trump's campaign he was quite happy to court these people and he was happy to court these people particularly through Britbart which is an online news service which uh, Steve Bannon was one of the editors for. Now you know and Bannon has actually come out and said publicly that that Britbart is a voice for the alt-right, the for these people. So with the announcement of him now being the chief advisor, this has thrown people into a lot of spin in the sense of what does this mean not only for Muslims, what does it mean for Hispanic people, what does it mean for blacks, what does it mean for women, all of these things. But what is interesting about it, if we look at the, uh, the Palestine-Israel issue, is what does this now mean for the Middle East and the Palestine-Israel issues? Now, there has um, been a whole heap of articles, particularly in the American Jewish media in the last few days, talking about, is it possible to be anti-Semitic and be pro-Israel? And basically the conclusion of the uh, articles, particularly in, uh, there's an, um, a well-known Jewish online magazine called Forward, particularly they've been publishing a lot of material in the last week or so, and they have basically said, yes, it's possible to be anti-Semitic and be pro-Israel at the same time, which, you know, for most of us is like, 
that's just crazy. And so, uh, you know, a number of the articles have talked about how Trump is welcomed by the hard right, hard Zionist right in Israel, because basically of it's it'll be the support for for the Israeli state. And Bannon has been very, Bannon and both Trump have been very supportive of the Israeli state, but Bannon is also viewed as being anti-Semitic and he's viewed as being, you know, a supporter, as Trump is, of or at least giving a pass to this white supremacist neo-Nazi right wing that has been supportive of the Trump campaign for the last uh, year and a half or whatever it has been. So I think this is really interesting. And, you know, and we've seen uh, what we talked just a little bit before about BDS, how Israel goes on this campaign against BDS, non-violent BDS activists who are campaigning solely for the right of Palestinians, which are recognised under international law, not only their their rights as uh, citizens of Israel, but their rights as people living under occupation or their rights of, of, as, of, as refugees who have been forced into exile by the Israeli state. And they are, you know, BDS activists are regularly, regularly denounced as anti-Semitic by not only the Israeli state, but by Zionists and other Israel apologists, including here in Australia. We see, we see it in the media all the time. Whenever, you know, we've talked before about the BDS campaign here in Australia, and regularly BDS activists were denounced by the Australian and, uh, and various politicians as being anti-Semitic, and that the BDS campaign is anti-Semitic. Well, now we have in the US, with Trump coming to power, Bannon being put in as chief advisor, you have many of the Zionist organisations who have regularly denounced BDS activism as anti-Semitic, saying, oh, no, no, this is okay. It's okay. They're not really anti-Semitic. Now, we even had people like Alan Dershowitz, who is well-known for vilifying the left and well-known for, for denouncing any supporters of Palestinian rights as anti-Semitic, including the BDS campaign, uh, has come out in defence of the appointment of Bannon and Trump and things like that. So, you know, this really goes to show well, what is Zionism about? And this is one of the things that's been now discussed in the... Uh, the Jewish press, including the Zionist press in the US, about the Trump ascendancy and the Trump presidency, as what does this mean uh, in relation to anti-Semitism and Israel? You know, we've seen over the years, there's been this coalescing for many, many years of the hard right, uh, white supremacist right, fascist right, who have been supportive of the Israeli state. We've seen it here in, uh, even in Australia, you know, that we We've had mobilisations for the last year and a half against the uh, the fascist right here in Australia, which is small compared to Europe. But you know, I've been to demonstrations here against the fascists uh, in, in Melbourne and, and and in regional Victoria, and you see on them their side holding up Israeli flags, while at the same time their leaders, you know, make all of these videos which basically reiterate anti-Jewish conspiracy theories and it's quite mind-boggling when you think about it and what's noticeable about the articles that have appeared in the forward, particularly there was one by, I'll just 
tell you the name if, it, if people want to look it up by uh, uh, an Israeli journalist called Naomi Zevlov, uh, and it, it you know it asks the question: Can Steve Bannon be you know pro-Israel and anti-Semitic at the same time? In the article, she you know talks through a number of experts on the issue of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, and you know what a number of them point out is that there is actually no correlation between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. But of course, over the years, we have seen the Israeli right and the Israeli state and apologists for Israel try to say that anti-Zionism is no different from anti-Semitism. And, you know, in the, particularly in the US over the last four to five years or maybe more specifically in the last two years, an attempt to criminalise BDS, an attempt to criminalise pro-Palestine activism as anti-Semitic. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes over the next you know, four years of uh, Trump's presidency. I'm hoping that there will be a recognition that this is really problematic because it is very problematic. And for anybody who, you know, uh, who's in the pro-Palestine campaign, we need to be calling this out. And, uh, you know, it has been good because most Palestinians have already, uh, and pro-Palestinian activists have been saying, no, these guys are anti-Semitic and these guys are appalling and we shouldn't be whitewashing that at all. What's also been encouraging in the US, there is a group, I think they're calling themselves the Jewish Resistance, who have already started protesting against Bannon and against Trump. They've staged a number of sit-ins. I saw a video where uh, I think it was in New York, there was a whole group of them marching down the street chanting against Trump and against Bannon, which was uh, really good to see. Now, and of course, the other thing, you know, we've got to look in the broader spectrum of this, what Trump election has also resulted in, which has been fantastic on one level, is the the mass mobilisations on the streets since his election was announced. And we've seen, you know, something like 25 cities across the US, maybe more, where tens of thousands of people have come out to protest against him. And, you know, there's all been this debate about whether they're Clintonisters, whether they're just, you know, crybabies. You see this rhetoric from the right, both in Australia and in the US. Oh, they're just crybabies just accept the election. Well, no, we shouldn't, uh, you know, ex- just normalise the fact that, you know, a man who is explicitly racist, who managed to uh, explicitly sexist, is now the most powerful man in the world. And that doesn't mean you support Clinton because um, most of the protesters when they've been interviewed by people in the media, it turns out, you know, a great majority of them don't didn't support Clinton either. They're just as outraged at her policies because she was extremely, you know, had problematic policies in relation to black people as well as Hispanic people. Her policies on Israel were just appalling, very right-wing as well. And, of course, she has a long reputation of supporting imperialist wars in the Middle East. And that was activist Kim Bullimore with all things Palestine on 3CR. It's now 4.44 and this program goes until 6 o'clock. I'll be speaking soon with Bob Phelps from the Genetics Network. Then we'll be hearing from Dr Brian Singleratna and finally Kayung Wong about um, the political situation in Malaysia. Hi there, my name's Ruth Hazelton. 
Hi, I'm Julian Wilson. We've started a campaign on Change.org called Hands Off Radio National Music, protesting the axing of music in general from our national broadcaster. Music on Radio National is essential to the cultural diversity and identity of Australia, and we'd like you to sign the petition if you agree with us. If you'd like to support us, you can do a Google search for Hands Off Radio National Music, and this should take you to a Facebook page and also the petition page on Change.org. Hands Off Radio National Music is a 3CR supporter. And for the last segment for the year with Gene Ethics Director Bob Phelps. Bob, an issue that you've focused on over the past couple of months, and that's new GM techniques and the push by industry that they should have open slather to modify all living things with no restrictions. Well, yes, this is a global debate about these new gene technologies. Any living organism is fair game as far as they're concerned. They're making the same kinds of claims that they did for the original GM techniques in the 20th century. Now we're in the 21st century and there's a whole crop of new ways of manipulating the genes of uh, anything from microbes, insects, human beings, animals, plants and so on. We're arguing that there needs to be a precautionary approach to this. Uh, The precautionary principle in the Convention on Biological Diversity is also written into our regulatory laws in Australia. Meanwhile, our regulators, Food Stamps Australia and New Zealand, and the Office of Gene Technology Regulator are both consulting with industry and scientists, and the word back from them is that not all of these new techniques and their, proje- uh, and their products will be required to be um, regulated, which means really that there would be no assessment Uh, regulation, licensing or monitoring of those uh, either in the environment or in the food supply. And yet it's very early days. The real world experience of these new so-called gene-edited organisms is um, very minimal. There's now quite a bit of research in laboratories, of course, which doesn't tell us how things are going to behave out in the world. And there's one particular area of this work that is of particular concern and will come up at the um, Convention on Biological Diversity and Biosafety meeting, which begins next week in um, Cancun and Central America as part of the Convention on Biological Diversity consultations. And we'll be calling for a global ban on so-called gene drives. This is a use of these new techniques to drive a gene through a whole population of organisms. So, for instance, there's a company, Oxitec, which is talking about creating a gene which will wipe out mosquitoes, which sounds like a very good idea because, of course, malarial mosquitoes kill very many people around the world each year. However, should we wipe out a whole species of, of organisms, then who knows what ecological consequences that's likely to have. So this is a very robust discussion that's taking place at the moment worldwide and we're hopeful that the precautionary principle will prevail, that a lot more research will need to be done, a lot more evidence will need to be in before any of these gene-driven organisms are released to the environment. Well, looking at the, the GM that we know about, it's hidden in Australian food supplies and there aren't many crops that are GM, but... If you eat a lot of processed food, you're likely to come across GM products. Is that correct? Well, indeed, yes. And Choice magazine um, just published a a very interesting report about this. 
on the whole gene scene, as it were, and found uh, that 84% of Australians are concerned about eating food with genetically manipulated ingredients. Yes, you're right, there's only the cotton, soybean, corn, canola and sugar beet are the main crops out there at the moment, the sugar beet just in uh, the USA and now genetically manipulated potatoes which are in North America as well. In Australia we're growing cotton and canola. The oil of both of those crops comes into the food supply in a range, a large range of uh, processed foods. Particularly the cottonseed oil is now used extensively in frying junk food. When uh, shoppers go to uh, buy their fish and chips they should be asking their supplier whether or not they're using cottonseed oil because uh, the cottonseed oil will be genetically manipulated. They're in small goods, snack foods, baked processed foods and a whole range of other things. Similarly, canola oil, it can be in um, snack foods, generic vegetable oils, which don't specify what the contents are. And then, of course, in the global food supply, even though we don't grow soybean, genetically manipulated corn, or sugar beet or GM potatoes here in Australia. In the globalised food supply, these uh, products can come into our food supply literally from anywhere in the world with any status and uh, our regulators are asleep on the job. The food standards regulatory requirements uh, exempt most of the products of genetically manipulated crops from any labelling at all. So things like vegetable oils, starches and sugars, which are the main derivatives of GM crops, don't require any labelling. The regulators claim that these are, are identical to conventional foods and therefore don't require to carry any sort of label. Any food sold in a restaurant doesn't require any labelling. And then, of course, there's the 1% wriggle room for accidental contamination. If something that should be labelled like uh, soy milk or something like that were to come into the food supply, then provided it's below the 1%, the um, regulators will forgive them if it's, if it's test positive. Uh, there have been tests done over the years, uh, particularly on infant formulas. Genetically manipulated soy and corn products were found and the regulators simply forgave those who were um, selling their contaminated uh, GM products to infants. Not satisfactory, and again, our regulators not doing a satisfactory job and talking all the time to industry to work their way around even those weak requirements. Yes, you've got a few problems with those regulators, haven't you? Food Stamps Australia New Zealand in particular is a very limp-wristed and weak regulator. Uh, for instance, irradiated foods are now going to come extensively into the food supply. I think we've talked about this before, but just to bring people up to date, there are now 25 particularly tropical fruits and vegetables, tomatoes and capsicums, for instance, mangoes, pawpaw, all approved for irradiation to uh, neutralise fruit fly larvae that might be living in the fruit. Uh, they had to uh, phase out the two very toxic chemicals uh, that had been used for about 20 years. Those disappeared last year. And now the default position is becoming that these foods will be irradiated. At the moment, there's a requirement that they be labelled, but Food Standards Australia New Zealand has a process going on at the moment to remove the labelling requirements so that shoppers will not know if they go into the supermarket and there are both irradiated and non-irradiated mangoes, for instance. 
there will not be a label which will differentiate them. You'll be potentially buying a fruit that's been exposed to the equivalent of up to 10 million chest X-rays, energy equivalent, a highly processed food, not fresh, because of course it uh, extends the shelf life of these foods as well as neutralising the fruit fly. Shoppers will be buying it as though it were fresh fruit, uh, even though its nutritional value will be adversely affected. Food doesn't become radioactive, I think that's the first thing to say. It's just that this energy does have substantial impacts. The nutritional value is affected. Radiolytic products are left in the food and the safety of these is still has a big question mark over it. So I think the labelling is absolutely essential. For Sam's and the industry, uh, their response is, well, the label were there, people wouldn't buy the product. That's why we uh, want to remove the label, <laughs> which is a pretty bad reason for wanting to do something, I think. And where have these fruits been tested or these foods been tested to ascertain just how much they could be damaging not only the fruit <laughs> but also us? Well, for Sam's does none of its own testing, so really it's reliant on the industry figures about this. But the main market testing is actually in New Zealand. Uh, because New Zealand requires Australian fruits and vegetables going into that market to be absolutely squeaky clean for any um, fruit fly contamination, irradiated fruits will initially at least uh, be mainly going into uh, New Zealand and Asian markets but they are approved for use in Australia and I think very soon we'll see that these are available here as well. As of uh, next year, if uh, the regulators decide, as we expect, because they're keeping it very secret at the moment, we envisage that there won't be a label on those. So just another step backwards for shoppers in, in our right to know what's been done to our foods. And where does that leave our green food policy? I think that's a real question. In some states, of course, South Australia and Tasmania are now very vigorously uh, promoting their clean green and GM-free food products. Hopefully those states will maintain the rage and uh, keep giving their own and other shoppers really good first-class foods. We hope others will follow suit, but I think that um, the bottom line is there's got to be labelling. To say that because shoppers are not going to buy a product, you're not going to label it is just a phony thing. And what the public opinion surveys have found is that some people will just shop on price, will buy irradiated food, for instance. Some 20% of people don't appear to care about it at all. So if they've got 20% market share, it's just foolish to say that everybody else should be denied that information on the basis that they're not going to be able to sell the product. And hardly a week goes by in many countries without Monsanto being in the news, and it's usually negative. Well, yes, it often is. Uh, but, of course, Monsanto is going to disappear soon. It's being taken over by, by Bayer. That will mean that there are only uh, three major transnational corporations dominating seed supplies and agrochemical supplies in the world. This is a very bad development that such... Um, monopoly uh, situation will exist. Regulators in the USA and elsewhere are looking at it, but I think with the new uh, president in charge in the USA, you can expect that at least there it will get a nod. What will happen in Europe, we don't know. Probably um, other countries like Canada and uh, Australia will go along with the, uh, with the consensus elsewhere. Almost total control of the global food and um, food production supply is going to be... Um, a very unfortunate development. 
uh, particularly on, on the question of the supply of um, seed worldwide because, of course, much of the seed supply is now patented or is monopoly owned and controlled under plant breeders' rights provisions worldwide. That gives um, these corporations uh, very unreasonable powers over what foods are produced, where, when and uh, on what basis they're supplied to the people of the world. Roundup continue to be produced? Oh, I'm sure it will. It's Monsanto's main cash cow, although they are big time in uh, genetically manipulated crops as well. Really, they're their two products, um, Roundup, um, and they still, along with um, Chinese companies, produce something like 50% of the world's Roundup, even though it's off patent. They've um, very cleverly manoeuvred themselves to remain uh, the main uh, producer and marketer of the brand name products. The Chinese generics come into the market, but for instance, if they write a contract on a genetically manipulated crop, then Monsanto specifies that the farmers must use its brand named product, even though it's more expensive than the generics. So they've got a market there. It's the most used weedicide in the world despite the fact that it's now, by the World Health Organization's expert committee, had the finger pointed at it as a probable human carcinogen. There's a lot of pushback on that evidence, and uh, it's likely to remain as the main chemical weed management tool for a fair while yet, I'd say, because there is nothing around uh, that's as broad spectrum that will kill any living plant. And uh, farmers, local councils and individual gardeners are still using it extensively. It's a dangerous actor, both for human health, uh, particularly those who use it in their garden or on the roadsides. It leaves residues in food and in human tissues as well. So we should be very, very cautious about Roundup indeed. When you think of the amount of chemicals in the air, I always think about the photos of children in the Royal Children's Hospital suffering from cancer and you think how many, how can it be that so many children have got cancer? You have to wonder and be concerned about it. I mean this is where the debate really is, you know, <laughs> are we just reporting better or um, are kids surviving more? Are they being exposed to a whole raft of new chemicals and pharmaceuticals? Yes, but again we've got a whole industry that's focused on producing cures rather than preventing disease. For those who are saying, you know, we should be preventing these things by cleaning up our environment, cleaning up our food supply, amending our lifestyles, that's not an industry. That's just uh, trying to do the right thing. There's no profit in that. Whereas the cancer industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the agrochemical industry are all cashed up, keen to sell their products, regardless of the actual consequences to human health and the environment. I think our scepticism about all of this is fully justified and it's a shame now that science has become the servant of industry. It's very hard to find any independent scientists or science. As a result, it's a nexus of power and control and profit that uh, is very hard to push against. But we keep trying. Never lose hope because it, it is important to try to make people's lives better. Well, there are good news stories out there and one comes from the UK which is the supermarket chain Waitrose. That's right Waitrose is just among the um, first in the UK to um, clean up its animal food supply because of course 
while we've been talking extensively about genetically ma manipulated um, crops and foods, it's important always to remember that most people don't want to eat them. And as a result, an enormous amount of these genetically manipulated products go into firstly biofuel production these days to try to replace uh, petroleum and secondly into animal feed because nobody seems to care too much about the state of health of animals and their animal products either. Animals are slaughtered for food uh, before the impacts of uh, a poor diet or um, ill health can appear. As a vegetarian I always wonder uh, why people don't really seem to care about the quality and healthfulness of the, of the um, animal products that they eat. And yet we've got all sorts of um, stuff like um, hormones, antibiotics, a whole raft of uh, rather questionable feed going into animals. Take the salmon, for instance, on which there was a very good Four Corners program a couple of weeks ago. And it's worth going back to have a look at that Four Corners program and just to realise what's done to farmed salmon in Tasmania. Its impact on the environment is what those um, fish are fed, what uh, chemicals they're given to colour the meat so that it's nice and pink. These are real issues for human health and safety as well as the environment in which those animals are forced to survive. A little thing like <laughs> Waitrose cleaning up its um, animal feed supply and saying you've got to give us GM free. It's a little chink in the armour but uh, here in Australia, we really haven't seen any movement on it. While, for instance, all of the meat for export now is required to be hormone-free, meat producers in Australia are still free to put hormones, uh, particularly into cattle, for the domestic market. And those hormone residues do survive in the meat. It has more or less subtle impacts on human health as well. There are many, many questions to ask of our Food Stands Australia New Zealand. People can go on the for SANS website. If they sign up, they can get the weekly or fortnightly uh, news and the occasional newsletters and just keep abreast of what's being done to our food because it really is a top issue. And meanwhile, of course, we've got some very, very good groups like Sustain and the Food Sovereignty Alliance and others now moving to uh, get people more actively engaged in pr producing their own food, making urban agriculture a reality for the future because of course we shouldn't either take the security of the Australian food supply for granted. Our governments focus primarily on making and marketing food for export and really um, Australian shoppers and uh, the food eaters of Australia are left way way behind and we need a new focus on uh, the importance of a good balanced diet for good health. It's not by chance that we've got probably a billion people in the world malnourished and hungry and we've got probably another one and a half billion who are grossly obese and ill and it's for the same reason, not enough fresh fruits and vegetables in their diet. We need to be feeding the world well. Uh, every day, fresh fruits and vegetables, every meal, fresh fruits and vegetables will fix the obesity problem will fix the hidden hunger problem in poor countries. People can achieve their right to food, to a good balanced diet and to good health as a result. Looking back on 2016, Bob, what do you believe your group has achieved this year? Oh gosh, what a question that is. 
It's incremental. We're um, at the moment working very strenuously for Australia to sign up to the um, International Biosafety Protocol. It will be discussed again at the um, meeting coming up in Cancun in Central America uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Australia is not a member, though 170 other countries are. It provides a framework for the safe international handling, transport and use of genetically manipulated foods and food products. Just a scandal that Australia, the US, Canada and a couple of other countries that are grain traders don't belong because we're saying, oh, it might be a barrier to free trade. We've been making representations to the federal government that environment, health and other departments, agriculture, should get involved and should be saying to the trade people, look, it's about time we joined this. It's been in force since 2002. We're a laggard on this. And we import food now, much, much food that we need to ensure is biosafe. We have big biosecurity problems with some 50 attacks on Australia from exotic species that can do huge damage in our environment. We need the biosafety protocol to be in place. We need to be abiding by it. And we're saying to the government very loudly and clearly, uh, and we're starting to get a debate there with support from the crossbench and from the Labor Party to say it's about time we joined. We're not just an exporter of commodities to the world. We need to make food secure for our own community. We need it healthy for our own community. Let's just say to the US, OK, if you want to stay outside, we're now going to uh, change our view we're not going to put trade first. We're going to say we need safety, we need biosafety. And again, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which looks like it's going to topple over, it was going to be bad news for our food supply and food security as well. We're um, very proud and pleased that we were a small part of the global community movement to um, get rid of that really o onerous and odious uh, trade agreement. It's fallen over now by the look of it with... Uh, President-elect Trump saying he won't sign on to it. U.S. Congress and Senate saying the same uh, because, of course, they were the big player and were trying to force it down everyone else's neck. So that's a little bit of good news from this year as well. Well, it's been great to have you this year, Bob, and I'm sure that you'll be back again next year. Well, I'd like to do that if, you, if you'll have us. Um, thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to work with you, Jen. OK, Bob, thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. And that, of course, is Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. And you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Celebrate International Day of People with Disabilities, all day Saturday, 3rd of December, with 3CR. The word disability is so broad now and it's come so far. There's so much ability within disability these days. Join us from 12 to 4pm for local news and views from the city of Yarra. There are a number of Australians who dedicate a large proportion of their energies and resources to publicising the situation for the Tamil population of Sri Lanka, particularly following the ending of the long civil war and the determination of the Sri Lankan authorities to hide the reality of life for Tamils in Sri Lanka. The one I know best is Sri Lankan-Australian Dr Brian Sinwaratna, who writes and speaks tirelessly to keep the Tamil issue at the forefront of people's minds. 
His latest venture was an address at a public rally in Brisbane on Saturday. Brian, who organised the rally? Actually, it was organised by the Tamil Refugee Action Group, of which I'm not a member. But uh, because of the title, when they asked me to speak, I said I'd be more than happy to. The leaflet came, it says in big letters, no returns to danger, Sri Lanka is not safe. Reading more, it says the Australian government is using the profoundly flawed fast-track refugee processing system introduced by Scott Morrison to return many Tamils and others to danger. The system is flawed as there is no judicial oversight and a future, future-looking test based solely on the current situation in Sri Lanka, disregarding any previous harm, violence, and that security forces operate with impunity. The Australian government refutes credible and current reports of human rights abuses and uses a document prepared by its own agency, the Department of Foreign Affairs, DAFT, to argue some areas are safe for Tamils to return. DAFT has issued travel advice to Australians to exercise a high degree of caution in visiting Sri Lanka. No part of Sri Lanka is safe for the Tamil minority. Sri Lanka remains a heavily militarized country and any Tamil moving into a new area would immediately come to the attention of authorities and be targeted for persecution with deadly consequences. Amnesty's 2015-16 report on Sri Lanka says that despite the Sri Lankan government's talk, many challenges remain. Open court, including persistent use of arbitrary arrest and detention, torture and other ill-treatments, enforced disappearances and deaths in custody, and a long-standing climate of impunity for those and other violations. What is happening to the Tamil minority and other asylum seekers amounts to refoulement under the UN Refugee Convention. I don't know whether I pronounced that word right. It's one of these French things that I can never pronounce. It means return. We demand an imme- immediate moratorium on both forced deportations and so-called open court, voluntary open court returns. Please join us and stand for human rights. And then it ends with no deportations, no voluntary returns. The rally in the middle of uh, Brisbane on Saturday, 12th November. And that was it. And I was given (laughs) seven minutes to tell the crowd what is going on in Sri Lanka, who the Sinhalese are, who the Tamils are, and what the current situation is. Absolutely impossible. So having taught medical students for many years, I decided the thing to do was to set out what I would have set out, which had taken 45 minutes, print it out, and then in four minutes, just say, please read what I have circulated, and you will realize that the whole thing is complete nonsense. Australia can do what it wants, but it can't do that as a signatory to the UN Asylum Seeker Convention. But then I did something quite smart, even though I say it myself. Yasmin Suka is uh, a head of the human rights group in South Africa. She did an outstanding study for the BAR, B-A-R, of human rights in England. It's a legal thing. And she got a grant to do a very extensive study. 
And what she did was, she of course couldn't get to Sri Lanka, so she sat in London and advertised for people who had been asylum seekers, who had returned to Sri Lanka, been tortured, escaped again, and come back to England. She interviewed 40 people, 20 males and 20 females, and has written an outstanding book called The Unfinished War, Sexual Violence and Harassment of Tamils. It's a 107-page booklet, which I sat up all day and all night and condensed to 10 pages because I know from past experience that nobody on this earth, except very dedicated people, will read anything more than two pages. And that was available for circulation. But that says it all, that if you return people to Sri Lanka, they will be tortured, they will disappear, or be harassed, or whatever, and that state is going to be worse than what they left. That was the net result of the meeting, which was surprising. I mean, I've addressed many, many meetings in Brisbane on this issue. And we normally get about five, ten people, normally the same faces. But this time we got about 200. And a lot of them were non-Sri Lankans, which are good. It means that the message is getting across that what we are doing in Australia is illegal, immoral, and a violation of the UN uh, Asylum Seeker Convention. Instead of reading your paper, Brian, I'm sure that most of the listeners to 3CR have heard many of the points that you made in that paper. Could you go to the end of your paper and talk about the truth about asylum seekers? Yeah, I can do. The first is alarmist language, irresponsible suggestions and downright lies about asylum seekers. You know, the asylum seeker language is to fan hysteria, such as, open quote, terrorists are entering Australia. This is only border protection. This country will be swamped by refugees, etc. The politicians and the media revel in this. One cannot disguise racism and political opportunism behind the mask of national security, border protection, etc. It is for us to pull down their masks and expose their evil faces behind them. We have to expose them on the Australian stage and even on the world stage in all its brutality and ugliness. Myth number one, they are queue jumpers. There is no queue when people are fleeing murderous regimes, nor should there be. Let me give you a medical analogy which everyone should be able to appreciate. There is a waiting list for the removal of an appendix. Every hospital has got a waiting list. However, if the appendix ruptures, the patient is operated on at once. Now the question is, is he a queue jumper? Because he was added to the list only last week, and there were people who had been there for six months. But he was, he was operated on immediately. Secondly, asylum seekers are illegal immigrants. Asylum seekers are not doing anything illegal. On the UN a refugee Convention and Australia's own laws, it is absolutely clear that it is perfectly legal to seek asylum. More than 85% of people fulfill refugee criteria, more on appeal. Even with the UN High Commissioner for Refugee status, they can languish in camps indefinitely. What then is the meaning in practical terms of being a United Nations refugee. 
Yes, a UN certified refugee. The answer is nothing. Meet three. We must crack down on people smugglers. People smugglers exist because there is a need for them, for desperate people to flee. The only way to end people smuggling is to get rid of the need for them by providing safe passage for threatened and vulnerable people. The greater the barriers for refugees, the more we, they will turn to people smugglers. With four, Australia is a generous taker of refugees. That is a downright lie. Australia is one of the most non-generous asylum seekers. The number of refugees taken by Australia in relation to its population is abysmally poor. Only one refugee is taken for every 1,600 people in Australia with a per capita GDP of $35,677, the 13th highest in the world, while one refugee is taken for one in every 40 people in a miserably poor country such as Tanzania with a per capita GDP of only 144 from the top. Myth number five, refugees cost us greatly. That is arrant nonsense. It is border protection or border control that is highly expensive. Millions of dollars are spent on Nauru, Manus, and Christmas Island to say nothing of the numerous detention centers in mainland Australia to run torture camps and outsource refugees. Uh, policy will help and settle refugees at far less cost to say nothing of the talent, expertise, and willingness of refugees to work in this country. And that has been established beyond any conceivable doubt. Myth six, you let refugees in, it will open the floodgates and we will be swamped with refugees. That is just nonsense. Prior to 1992, when there was no mandatory detention, refugee applicants lived in hostels. There was no flood. Refugees come only when forced to come here. East Timor is an excellent example. Here is a desperately poor country, right on our doorstep. Yet, there has been no flood of refugees from there. People would rather stay in their country, even a poor one, rather than in a rich foreign land. That is not an opinion to be uh, debated, but a fact to be faced and learned from. Myth number seven, there may be terrorists among the asylum seekers. For example, Tamil Tiger terrorists. Well, if there are terrorists who have committed an offense, then they should be charged before a proper court like any other person who has committed a crime. I might remind you that if an armed fighter in Sri Lanka or anywhere else has laid down his arms, there is a French word called hors de combat, H-O-R-S-D-E-C-O-M-B-A-T, which literally means out of the fight. It is a French term used in international law to refer to those who are incapable of performing their military function whether it be fighting for the Sri Lankan army or the Tamil Tiger army. Such fighters, Hordi Kamba, are granted special protection according to the laws of war, sometimes including prisoner of war status. To do otherwise is a violation of international law, and that is what Australia is doing. Let us not be hypocrites. 
there are many members of the Sri Lankan armed forces who have committed or been responsible for major crimes, including violations of the laws of war, who have no problems coming to these countries. Some are even diplomats, including Australia, I might add. Should they be kept out or arrested or charged when they come to other countries, as had the Nazi war criminals? They should be. Several of them have directly committed war crimes and have been appointed as Sri Lanka's ambassadors to important countries, including this, and have been accepted. Another has been accepted, we wouldn't believe it, in the United States to represent Sri Lanka. He should have been locked up. Meet eight. Asylum seekers are the problems. Where illegal entry into Australia or illegal residence in this country is concerned, asylum seekers who arrive by boat or plane are vastly outnumbered by people who overstay their visa. For example, in 2007-8, there were 48,500 visa overstayers and only 1,476 unauthorized arrivals of whom only 25 arrive by boat. If you want to get rid of refugees, stop creating them. For example, by supporting the Sri Lankan government's policy to wipe out the Tamils to make Sri Lanka a Sinhalese Buddhist country. I might end by saying that the damage is done not only to the asylum seekers, but to Australia. And as an Australian of 40 years duration, I object to that. Damage is done to this country by violating the UN Refugee Convention signed and ratified by Australia. It is outrageous that this country supports and cooperates with one of the most barbaric regimes in Asia, the murderous totalitarian regime that runs Sri Lanka. The reality that Tamils were slaughtered, their homes destroyed, locked up, concentration camps with very limited access to the outside world, and were forced to flee the country as refugees seems to be of no concern to any Australian government, perhaps except the Greens Party. The strategy to maintain open quote friendly relations and trade links with a neighboring country, however barbaric the regime is, is what is important. It is commerce, trade, and the control of the commercially uh, vital Indian Ocean, uh, one of the most commercially important oceans in the world, and for which a foothold in Sri Lanka, a stride this ocean, is what determines Australian action. Australian politicians could not care less about the reputation of Australia as caring, decent country, the treatment of the body is accepted, of course, the recent much trumpeted apology to them by the former uh, Prime Minister uh, Kevin Rudd being words without a meaning. What can I say to the Australian Prime Minister, who claims to be a Christian, I'd say that it is the most unchristlike Christian who disregards the when I was homeless, you took me in provision, when the people in need of a home have a brown skin. To Australian politicians who often say that both people heading to Australia are not Australia's problems, may I remind them that it is Australia's problem. Australia holding innocent Tamils and others without charge or trial in Nauru, Manus Island, Christmas Island, 
and numerous hell holes in remote parts of Australia out of the sight of troublesome human rights activists is a violation of every international convention on human rights that Australia has signed. Political leaders in Australia and Sri Lanka are glaring examples of what Obama said in Cairo. There are some who advocate democracy only when they are out of power. Once in power, they are ruthless in suppressing the rights of others. To the rest of the world, I repeat what Obama again said in Cairo, but it's something that has been known for years, and I quote, there is one rule that lies at the heart of every religion, that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. This truth transcends nations and peoples, a belief that isn't new, that isn't black or white or brown, that isn't Christian, Muslim or Jew. It is a belief that passed in the cradle of civilization and still beats in the hearts of billions. It is this simple truth that has motivated and driven me since 1948, when I was only a 16-year-old kid and decided to get involved in all this. I will end with what Edmund Burke, the Irish politician and philosopher, said so many years ago. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And I urge you, good men and women, including those who are listening to this program, to stand with us and not allow the axis of evil, which is Sri Lanka, the U.S., Australia, and elsewhere, to triumph. Thank you. A special man, that's Dr. Brian Simiratna, Sri Lankan, singular Australian doctor, been here for nearly 60 years. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Bearside number five took place in Malaysia and other cities around the world on the 19th of November. A sea of yellow facing in Malaysia itself, pepper spray, projectiles fired from high-powered weapons as well as water cannon and tear gas. Kian Wong is a Malaysian journalist living in Australia. Kian, just remind us of the reasons why there is a Bursai movement, and we've just witnessed Bursai number five. Bursai really is this broad coalition of mostly civil society uh, organisations in Malaysia, which represents the Coalition for Clean and Fair Elections. And the word Bursay in Malay means clean. Basically a coalition formed nearly 10 years ago now to push for basically broader, greater democratization through clean and fair elections. And it's against corruption, it's for better governance, and for better human rights all around. So it's really struck a chord, I think, with a 
broad cross-section of Malaysians and through campaigning and street demonstrations where we've just witnessed birthday number five, you literally had, I guess, a cumulative total of millions on the street, not only in Malaysia, but also up to about 80 cities uh, around the world have uh, held solidarity rallies with overseas Malaysians uh, organizing these things, solidarity with those in Malaysia demanding clean and fair elections and greater democracy. Give us some examples of what that lack of free and fair elections has meant and maybe the the laws that are in place and the, the lack of human rights corruption. It hasn't got any better since uh, Bursay, the first Bursay, uh mass rally nearly 10 years ago and that's why it continues to draw so much interest. What has happened is that these public assemblies have been demonstrating against what has been a very biased election commission where there's been huge gerrymandering and malapportionment of constituencies where rural constituencies sometimes which favour the government are smaller by a factor of about five or six compared to many of the urban or mixed urban constituencies which are often held by the opposition. So you have the situation where the most recent uh, general elections in 2013, the opposition coalition uh, won the popular vote, but uh, resoundingly lost the uh, parliamentary seat, which meant that the incumbent uh, government under Najib Razak, the prime minister, still swept to power, despite clearly not winning the popular vote because of these malapportionments and gerrymandering of seats. That's on top of, of course, many allegations, some of which uh, have never been disputed by the government, of shady going on in terms of potential alleged vote rigging, fake voter rolls where um, thousands of so-called dead people remain on the rolls and may have voted. So there's all these um, shady things going on, as well as deeply and you know, patently unfair mass media coverage where the opposition almost never, in fact, actually it could be said never get um, any coverage in the licensed mainstream media, especially electronic TV and radio, uh, except when cast in a negative light. But it's much more than elections, isn't it? It's corruption, it's human rights, it's people dying. Yes, it has become a lot more than that. And one thing that has really spurred on, especially the mass demonstrations of birthday four and now birthday five, which just happened, you know, um, 10 days ago, has been the huge scandal, which has not been adequately addressed in any way by the federal government of Najib Raza, uh, when it broke a huge expose last year courtesy of whistleblower sites like Sarawak Report and then discussed worldwide thanks to newspapers like the Wall Street Journal as well as Malaysian online websites which have been news websites which have been uncensored like uh, the Malaysian Insider and Malaysia Kini, which basically discussed uh, and exposed these allegations of literally billions of US dollars uh, going missing from a uh, government-run sovereign wealth fund called 1MDB, 
the Prime Minister has never really adequately explained how close to a billion dollars was found in his personal account. Initially, it was claimed that it was a donation from a Saudi royal family member. But then subsequently, uh, documentation which also arose in the biggest ever investigation into kleptocracy by the uh, United States Department of Justice, where they filed a civil suit to recover over a billion dollars of allegedly illegally acquired assets. How basically all of this links back to a prime minister who has never really adequately accounted for how so much money has allegedly gone missing from the country's coffers, and some of it uh, has appeared in his own account. There's investigations in other countries apart from the US? That's right. About five different countries around the world, uh, including Switzerland, Singapore, Hong Kong, London, uh, and of course in America where the US uh, Department of Justice announced with some fanfare uh, a couple of months ago over its uh, launching of a civil suit to recover what it claims were a billion dollars worth of uh, illegal assets and which they would like to forfeit under their very tight anti-money laundering rule. And what has this done to the credibility of the Malaysian government overseas? It's woeful, really. There's really no other way to describe how much damage this government has done to the reputation of Malaysia as a country, as an economy, as a top 20 you know, trading nation in the world. It's damaged the economy substantially and in terms of how badly the ringgit, the currency, has dropped against other currencies. It has also affected the inflow of foreign investment, which has really been the fuel that has driven the Malaysian economy for the last couple of decades. It has also forced, in many ways, the Malaysian government to sales of many assets of the country to foreign interests, which, as both foreign analysts as well as even former Malaysian ambassadors have alleged, has really compromised the sovereignty of Malaysia. And that, in a way, rubs off on Australia, doesn't it? Because you've had Malcolm Turnbull cozying up to Najib, obviously trying to offload refugees onto Malaysia. Indeed. That, that is something that has been reasonably controversial about why a near neighbour like Australia, which wants to have an understandably serious and uh, significant role in Southeast Asia, and with a leading economy like Malaysia, why Australia, under the Turnbull government, has been so keen to overlook many of these disparities, despite the traditional Australian position on issues of corruption and human rights. A lot of that is, of course, linked back to the apparently desperate desire of the Turnbull government to sort out its refugee problem with a country like Malaysia, which I guess, luckily for Australia, may actually need the money that is promised in such a refugee swap deal. Can you explain what happened in the days leading up to the 19th of November 
and the day itself in KL. 19th of November was the date for birthday five to occur in Kuala Lumpur, but also marked with solidarity rallies in over 60 cities around the world. But in the lead-up to it, the month leading up to it, the birthday movement campaigners, uh, led by the uh, chair of birthday, Maria Chin Abdullah, went around the country. They were stopped in many smaller towns and areas around the country, and some of them were even refused entry into the Malaysian Borneo states of Sarawak and Sabah. But basically they were running this campaign around the country to raise awareness of the issues, the key themes of anti-corruption and clean and fair elections. They were harassed. Some of the roadshow supporters were even physically attacked by the so-called red shirt movement that are directly linked and funded by the ruling party of Najib, the Prime Minister. In the 24 hours on the eve of the uh, Birthday 5 rally in Kuala Lumpur on 19th of November, a whole swathe of arrests occurred. Basically, on the, the day before the rally, the Malaysian authorities raided the office of Birthday 2 in Kuala Lumpur, arrested its chair, Maria Chin Abdullah, the secretary manager, Mandit Singh, They did all of this uh, in front of a whole bunch of uh, international observers from various human rights and democracy and electoral organizations from around the world who had gathered in Kuala Lumpur for the rally on the 19th. And um, in front of all of these observers, uh, the authorities went to work by rounding up four of the organizing committee members and uh, more than 20 pro-birthday supporters have also, were also rounded up and charged. Charged with what? A variety of uh, offences under the Penal Code and also the Sedition Act. Some of them were charged, uh, arrested allegedly for rioting or undermining parliamentary democracy. A lot of this, of course, was preemptive because how could you be arrested and charged for rioting at an event which has not yet happened. It's all uh, a bit messy and uh, not very logical, but basically the law has been applied in all sorts of ways which people have now seen to be uh, unfair and uh, uncalled for. The birthday chair, Maria Chinabula, remains locked up uh, under this draconian law known as the Security Offences Special Measures Act, which was originally introduced and ran through Parliament in 2012 as a a new draconian law which allows for detention without trial and up to 15 years imprisonment and was sold and passed by the government as a law to tackle terrorism, terrorists which they feared were fighting um, in the Middle East who are coming back in Malaysia. Malaysia, of course, has an Islamic extremist problem, and they argued that this law was needed to basically allow for detention without trial, serious imprisonment, but they have now used it instead on uh, a government critic and a pro-democracy and free elections campaigner, which is the birthday chair. She has been denied access to lawyers initially, 
and family and has been kept in solitary confinement in a windowless cell um, with uh, the lights on 24 hours a day. So there's been a bit of um, alleged torture going on as well. What about the others? Are they still in custody as well? The others have been released. But having said that, in the last uh, 48 hours, the government seems to have been working hard with the police to uh, harass and threaten others um, with arrest and intimidation of charges. For instance, over the weekend, uh, at the launch, in fact, of the uh, Penang's or Georgetown Literary Festival, an annual international festival in literature and the arts, the well-known political cartoonist, Yuna, who was uh, last year's uh, global... Um, Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ um, Award recipient for Freedom of the Press. He opened his exhibition of cartoons at the Literary Festival and found a, a big mob of, again, the ruling party linked red shirt descending on his exhibition, basically kicking down the exhibit, thrashing it, creating what appeared to be a mini-riot. The police stood idly by. Instead, uh, the cartoonist Zuna was uh, arrested afterwards, allegedly again for sedition, detained and arrested, and uh, has since been recently released, but is again charged for sedition, which is apparently going to be his 10th charge. He already faces nine charges of sedition for his previous cartooning work, and up to about 40-plus years in prison if convicted. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR and I'm speaking with Malaysian journalist Kian Wong. He must be a pretty brave man to go back to Malaysia without hanging over his head. Well, it is, you know, but I, I guess a lot of these people feel quite strongly what is wrong with drawing cartoons and dissenting and criticising a government it is uh, enshrined in Malaysia's federal constitution, not unlike Australia's one, which allows for freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, one of the uh, foundation statutes of the constitution. But it appears that the current government and the police are ignoring that and uh, are using what is a colonial era law known as the Sedition Act to allow for harassment of um, the government's critics. Uh, They also have been using aspects of the penal code, which allow for the government and the police to harass and charge and detain its critics, allegedly for uh, undermining parliamentary democracy, which seems, of course, very ironic to lots of Malaysians because it would appear it is the government itself and its hooligans uh, known as the Red Shirt, who are undermining precisely that democracy. Well, if he's been charged and released, why are they putting the full force of the law on Maria Chin Abdallah? Why are they using the full force of the law on the birthday chair Maria Chin? Yes, because sooner he was um, someone they really wanted to get their hands on, wasn't he? Yeah, he's one of he's a political cartoonist that has been persecuted by the government several times, yes. But Maria Chin, I guess, is the chairperson of what has 
been the most successful dissenting organization in Malaysia, perhaps even more successful than the opposition party, which has managed to gather hundreds of thousands of Malaysians on Malaysia's street and also in solidarity that rallies in over 60 country, cities around the world, uh, which has continued to be persistently raising this issue of failing governance, corruption, the issue of billions of Malaysian taxpayer dollars are missing, and some of which found in the Prime Minister's uh, account. Is Versailles being attacked on other levels as well? It has certainly faced uh, a great deal of online harassment as well in what they call a DDoS or denial of service attacks, which has crashed both the website, email servers. Uh, it continues to be attacked online. And given that Versailles is really a tiny organization of about four staffers with 90% of its advocacy and campaigning work run by volunteers in quite an uphill task in order to maintain open and secure channels of communication. But it is also seen uh, for several days now, for nearly a week, and close to over a week now, where Malaysians have defied the orders of the police and continue to gather downtown in the historic Independence Square in sitting and in evening gatherings, vigils, calling for the release of the birthday chair, Mariuchin Abdullah. The police continue to make threatening noises about arresting people. So I expect, I guess, in the next coming week, we may well see uh, more repressive action by the police and the government arresting or harassing people, or perhaps they might send more of these hooligans to harass um, peaceful demonstrators. Just back to one MDB for a moment. A Member of Parliament has been jailed for 18 months for publicly disclosing information about the scandal. What did he or she disclose? Well, Rafifi Ramli is a leading member of the opposition. He's the Secretary, he was until recently the Secretary-General of PKR, the, uh, opposition, the leading opposition party, which was helmed by Anwar Ibrahim, the former Deputy Prime Minister, who is now in jail. And Rafizi basically, with a background in forensic accounting, exposed many scandals even before the uh, billion-dollar 1MDB scandal, previous scandals of uh, millions of dollars going missing and corruption by former cabinet ministers and uh, leading UMNO party members in what was known as Cowgate, where a government organization set up to supply and improve cattle production and livestock in Malaysia. Under this minister found that millions instead was invested in condominiums and uh, expensive holidays abroad and none of it went back to the poor farmers and cattle breeders who were supposed to help. So Rafizi, the parliamentarian behind all these exposés, has now found that he's been charged and convicted under the Official Secrets Act for putting out and releasing a lot of these accounts, including ones that were put under the Secrets Act like the Auditor General's report, which has been made a secret 
on the um, billion dollar scandal that is known as 1MDB. And he, of course, um, discussed and released all of this under uh, parliamentary privilege in Parliament, which, uh, as we know, with the Westminster system, the same here in Australia as well, uh, parliamentarians have a great deal of leeway to discuss uh, urgent matters of state uh, without having to face such legal restrictions. Yet um, he was charged under the Official Secrets Act, despite all that. Another person wasn't quite as lucky as that. He was tortured and murdered for, I think the the word was that he he planned to disclose information about the scandal or a scandal. I think you were talking about the alleged murder linked to this uh, billion-dollar scandal, the former Deputy Public Prosecutor, Kevin Morales. That's right. That case is ongoing. I'm not sure the details of how far that has gone, but suspects have been arrested. Nothing has happened since. There have been you know, several of these serious criminal allegations that are linked to the billion-dollar 1MDB, two other murders that are allegedly linked to the scandal as well. So the whole saga, as uh, described, for instance, in the whistleblower site, there are a lot of these details which the government uh, has never really adequately addressed. And instead, at the outset of last year, when the scandal broke uh, public cover, the Prime Minister sacked the Attorney General, uh, removed key members of the Anti-Corruption Commission, and under the new Attorney General, no case was found against the Prime Minister, and uh, a lot of the allegations were thrown out. Nothing really has occurred, and instead, actually, the new Attorney General has been working and campaigning hard against the dissenters and those critics of the Prime Minister. Is there an increasing level of frustration amongst society that... Despite all the efforts to bring down Najib, he appears to be secure as a Prime Minister. Is it going to take something from outside the country to bring him down? Well, if we follow the claims by the former Prime Minister, Dr Mahathir Mohamed, who of course is Malaysia's longest-serving Prime Minister, and in power for over 20 years until his retirement in, uh, over 10 years ago. But he was um, corrupt as well. Dr. Mahate was certainly the person that can be blamed for having, on the one hand, dramatically modernized the Malaysian economy and built up many of the iconic urban scape that is today's Kuala Lumpur, but on the other hand, also helped seriously damage many institutions like the judiciary, clamped down on the press, jailed many of his opponents and dissidents, including, of course, sacking and jailing the former Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Anwar Ibrahim, who remains the key opposition uh, leader who is now in jail. But interestingly enough, in the past year and a half, Dr. Mahate himself has now become a leading oppositionist to the current regime, the current government. He's 92. He's been at the forefront of the birthday five rally and demonstrations and has even appeared with his 91-year-old wife. Both of them have appeared at 
the street vigils for the release of the birthday chair, Maria Chin Abdullah, uh, as recently as a couple of days ago. There's a bit of irony I think many Malaysians are favoring, but at the same time are also very accepting that maybe he created the devil that he now feels he must try and control or contain, and it's proving to be very difficult when you could say a broad cross-section of society, including the man most popularly blamed for allowing these institutions to deteriorate the way they have, is also now against where Malaysia is going. So as I said, will it be outside pressures that will bring him down? Well, there was some hope that one key factor in pressuring uh, Prime Minister Najib to quit or to um, resign or to be pushed out was the billion-dollar case brought by the U.S. Department of Justice under the current Attorney General Loretta Lynch, launched with some fanfare a couple of months ago in Washington, uh, which at a press conference featured the Deputy um, FBI director, uh, and they detailed, uh, the document is still online, should anyone be interested. Uh, It's a fairly detailed civil suit. uh, talks about all these properties and where a lot of money that uh, was allegedly laundered through the American financial system, and a lot of uh, the money was um, uh, illegally acquired, sourced from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, which is, of course, directly under the control of the Prime Minister. Interestingly, this particular U.S. DOJ civil suit may well die a quiet death, given it's now the twilight days of the Obama administration. And, of course, uh, with every new administration, a new attorney general is appointed. Now, of course, there will be fairly dramatic change in Washington, given that a new Donald Trump administration seems to be, or is perceived to be, a lot more happy to do deals with all sorts of kleptocrats, autocrats, and dictators around the world. There's a lot of hope and expectation within government ranks in Malaysia that the new Trump administration would be far less antagonistic and would be willing to drop this billion-dollar civil suit against Malaysia and the Malaysian regime's interests. Everyone will be happy, and uh, the kleptocracy or corruption can continue. What about the cases in the other countries? They continue to persist. Probably most controversially was the recent statement issued by the Swiss Attorney General in the last month or so, which basically complained in fairly diplomatic language, but it was a complaint nonetheless, that the Malaysian authorities were not fully cooperative, were not cooperating with the Swiss authorities who were investigating these allegations of money laundering using this controversial sovereign wealth fund, 1MDB, and that despite the agreements that many countries have with Malaysia, where on such legal matters there should be cooperation. The Attorney General seems to have alleged that the Malaysian government has gone silent and has not been very helpful at all in trying to help track down at least the Swiss end 
of where all this money has disappeared to. So it continues? It seems to continue. Many of these investigations, I mean, it's a multi-jurisdictional affair, but I guess all of it is somewhat anchored, at least abroad, in this uh, United States Department of Justice investigation and civil suit under its kleptocracy division. But uh, as we were were saying, you know, um, that civil suit may well die a quiet death uh, with the ascension of Donald Trump as president. Everyone's fairly grim about this, partly because there seems to be a bit of a cold effect and it's unclear what can be done. There's a huge amount of a groundswell of public anger and, you know, dissent, both in Malaysia and abroad. I mean, there are several solidarity rallies and vigils for the birthday chair, Maria Chin Abdullah, as, as long as she remains detained without trial in Malaysia. There are solidarity vigils going on every Friday, every Saturday in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, London, Geneva, and I think several other cities, as well as what's going on every night in Kuala Lumpur. And I've been speaking with Malaysian journalist Kian Wong. There's two websites to follow up. One is Global Biasai. I'll spell that out. G-L-O-B-A-L-B-E-R-S-I-H dot org and there is the Malaysian Bearside B-E-R-S-I-H dot org That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock but stay tuned in just one moment for Dumbo Law. Bye for now.